So, uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Potomac Hills. Uh, my name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, please do stick around the service. We'd love, uh, after the service, we'd love the chance to get to meet you and uh, get to know you. If you're not new, uh, please do stick around and get to know the new folks and also the folks that you may not know very well in the, in the church. There are there's a fairly large group of people and you can't know everybody super well, but uh, today is an opportunity for you to connect with uh, the, wider part, the wider body of Christ. And so uh, please do enjoy um, your fellowship this morning. Uh, for everyone, a quick review. We are in a series of sermons going through biblical priorities, the sort of firsts of the Bible. Seek first, ask first, know first, which is this morning's uh, uh, first uh, for us. And uh, while we don't actually get the words no first in our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there, uh, what we do get is something that Paul wants us to know that is of first importance. And so it's sort of the priority, the thing that we need to know first before anything else. And so uh, let's turn our attention to God's word. I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you which, you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried uh, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and you also believed. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we come to this passage, we come to familiar doctrines of your death and your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see with new eyes uh, the wonder of your gospel, that we would see uh, just how foundational and uh, central these uh, great truths are that we might be changed and transformed by them, and most of all, that we might meet you, that we would receive you, and that we would rejoice in knowing you. And so, Lord, be with us this morning. Uh, show us Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I like to start off my sermons with a little bit of participation so that I know everybody's awake and listening. So how many of you guys, uh, you folks, have uh, ever had to construct something from Ikea. Okay, good, lots of hands. And I'm not really talking like those three-piecers that you know where everything goes, but the sort of 10-piecers or more 
where every board looks exactly the same and it's just a bookshelf, right? And so when I do <laughs> IKEA, I tend to just sort of have an adventure where I don't tend to often look at the directions and five hours and countless uh, frustration later, uh, I've, I've resigned myself to actually looking very, very closely at the most minute details so that I get the orientation of every board just right so I can get this bookshelf together. And, uh, you know, I think this morning as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a little bit like assembling IKEA furniture in that we know the gospel, we know what we're coming to, we know the, about the cross and the resurrection. How, how hard could it be? It's a bookshelf. It's the gospel, right? Frank, I've, you've got it easy today, 10 minutes, we're done, right? But like I, assembling IKEA furniture, it's not quite that simple. And while I hope this won't be a five-hour exercise in frustration, hopefully, I think that it, we ought to look closely at what Paul says is of first importance. You see, the Corinthians also knew the gospel, right? Way back then, they also knew the gospel. Paul himself, who is a much better preacher than you all have ever had, right? Paul himself had preached the gospel to them, and he, had re he reminds them of that fact in verse 1. They probably knew the gospel at least as well as you and I do. And yet, in spite of that knowledge, they were plagued by factions, divisions, immorality, idolatry, partiality, which is just favoritism, and uh, false teachings, to just name a few. And in short, they're very much like the wider church that we see today, plagued by scandal at almost every turn. Everywhere you look, there's scandal. And while we might say, well, that's not Potomac Hills, the difference is likely merely one of degree. Politics and the pandemic expose the factions and divisions that run quietly through our congregation. Um, we all deal with immorality and idolatry and partiality because we tend to be sinfully selfish and we tend to like the people that we like. And guess what? The church is filled with people that are hard to love, that don't always click with you. Why? Because the only thing that brings us together is Christ himself. And while we, I hope we don't deal with false teaching, I'm sure that there are theological errors within our membership, even your pastors with their theological training, me, right? There is probably theological error somewhere in what I believe, simply because I'm sinful and I don't have a corner on the truth. And I'm probably wrong about a lot of things. And so we find ourselves sort of needing to understand why Paul brings us here to the gospel now. After Paul had addressed many of the issues in the preceding chapters, why do we get something that we feel is so basic and so foundational in chapter 15. Why 15 chapters in? Why does Paul bring us back to something we almost certainly already know? Why do we get something of first importance, 15 chapters into the book? Why not first? And so why does Paul put the gospel here at the end of 1 Corinthians? That's our real big question this morning. And I think that Paul put the gospel here for at least two reasons. 
The first reason is that I think he wants to emphasize the resurrection. Because really everything turns on the historicity and truth of the resurrection. And this is really sort of the whole point of chapter 15 as a whole. You see, all of Paul's teachings to the Corinthians about their various issues and about the centrality of the gospel and all of that, none of it matters unless the gospel is true. And really, it really turns on whether or not the resurrection actually happens. Because there's, you know, Jesus dying is not in of itself supernatural, right? We, we understand that men die. But what's really truly supernatural is that he has come back to life. That really everything, the power, the victory rests in the resurrection. And so to summarize Paul's main point in all of chapter 15, if Christ is not raised, then the Bible doesn't matter at all. And there is no hope. And if Jesus isn't really, truly, and physically come back to life after three days, after being buried in a tomb, dead as a rock, if he doesn't come back to life, none of it matters. And so then Jesus is a liar, and the Bible is a sham, and we're wasting our time here. But if Christ is truly physically raised from the dead, then we must take everything that Jesus taught and said seriously. Why? Because he did what we could not. Our very hope of life beyond the grave rests beyond rests upon the Lord Jesus being able to defeat our greatest enemies, sin and death. And did you notice that Paul, in our passage this morning, is super eager to prove the resurrection, right? That the resurrection actually happened and isn't made up. Did you notice how quickly Paul, after talking about the resurrection, really quickly points to Peter and then to the disciples and then to the group of 500, then to James and then the apostles, and then last of all to him. He's supremely confident that every last one of them is going to say the exact same thing, that they saw Jesus in the flesh, alive and well, and in resurrection glory. And that's no small thing. Getting a group of 500 people to produce the exact same account independently when they're not in the same room, just sort of affirming, being able to sort of look at each other and try to get their, their story straight, right? The fact that you can get 500 people to give the exact same account is outrageous. How many of you have ever played the game Telephone? How many of you guys have ever gotten the beginning to the end exactly the same for like a very complex phrase? None of you, don't, none, of, none of you have ever done that. If you have, I want to talk to you because you're amazing, right? The idea that you could get 500 people on the same page about something as complex as the Lord God Almighty appearing to them in the flesh with all the various details. It's amazing. And so we know that it's true. But just because the resurrection is true, so what? While it's easy to grasp the big picture of the gospel as our salvation, the details of what that means for us when the rubber meets the road is a bit more difficult. And that's what gets the sort of the Corinthians in trouble, right? They aren't paying attention 
to the way the application of the directions, right? The application of the overall understanding to their lives. They're not getting the the minutia correct. And so they need to pay we need to pay attention. They knew it conceptually, but the gospel didn't saturate their whole lives. Rather, they did what we often do, which is to put a Christian twist on the same old things, to live practically and functionally as pagans, but with Christian clothing, with Christian language, with Christian sort of trappings. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, the gospel wholly and completely changes us into something different from what we were before. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are a new creation in Christ. What we were like before Christ has passed away. And that means how we live life, how we think and how we respond to others also has to radically change. And I think that Paul put the gospel here in chapter 15 because he's made the gospel really as bookends to the whole book. He's trying to show that the gospel is central and foundational to life, that everything in life revolves around the gospel. And so let's take a step back and consider 1 Corinthians as a whole. If we look back at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's focused on the death of Christ as the unifier of the church. There were big time divisions within the Corinthian church and Paul starts with the death of Christ as the unifier of the church. The divisions, factions, and partiality that plague the Corinthian church were based really primarily on the arrogance of wanting to be part of the best faction, right? This is the feud of which of the disciples is the greatest all over again. Which one of us is the best? Well, I follow Paul. I follow somebody else. Right? Who's the cool kid? Who's, where's the cool uh, group in the church? I want to be part of that. Each group thought that they were the best and held every other group in contempt. Well, the death of Christ really puts an end to all of that. Because guess what? It doesn't matter what group we're in. We're terrible, horrible sinners whose greatness leads to absolutely nothing. Where does the greatness of man lead? Nowhere except the judgment for our sin, which is death and hell and terrible things, right? Our greatness, which we thought was glory and greatness at the time, leads to nothing. It's empty. And the death of Christ really levels all the playing fields because it puts us all in the same boat, in desperate need of a savior. What's the point of saying that you're better than anyone else if you end up in the exact same place? If you end up with the exact same judgment? You're just the same as those scumbags over there that you have contempt for. The death of Christ makes sure that we have the proper perspective on ourselves. The fact that Jesus, the only perfect worthy one, whom we just sang is worthy, right? He had to die for you. That's what we deserve, is death. And for us to have salvation, there has to be death. And so look around. We're mostly middle class, upper middle class, upper class folks. 
we have VPs and department heads and chief engineers and insert other successful title here, right? That's us. We usually think pretty well of ourselves. We're educated, thoughtful, talented, decent, and upright people for the most part. Most folks would look at us and say that we're good people, unlike the neo-Nazis or racists or Democrats or Republicans, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, right? Or whoever else you look down on. But we need the exact same grace and the exact same savior as those people who are not good people. We are saved by Jesus, the same as neo-Nazis and racists and insert whatever. Do we functionally live as if we believe in the death of Christ, showing, that, showing us that we are in the same boat as everyone else? Or do we live as if we are prideful? And once we've worked through sort of the whole laundry list of issues in uh, the Corinthian church, Paul hammers things home by bringing them to the second part of the gospel, which is the resurrection here in chapter 15 to really sort of bookend the, end the book, right? Because 16 is sort of his goodbyes, but 15 really sort of ends the book. And after, the res after all, the resurrection is the word that the church needs because we're not left in our sin and in our judgment. We're not left at the cross contemplating our failure and our terribleness and our scumbagginess, right? But rather, the gospel moves us to the resurrection, which brings us hope. Our hope, our sure conviction, is that there is victory over our sinful arrogance, over our sinful lust, for the satisfaction of our sinful desires, over our sinful apathy towards sin. That's a lot of sin words, right? But the resurrection delivers us from it. Our hope is that the power of sin over us is broken so that we don't have to sin anymore. Our hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be able to be righteous and that we will be made righteous finally and surely and completely when the Lord returns. But that hope, is not a hope of our own, but a hope born outside of ourselves. It is of rescue that we don't deserve, an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther, Martin Luther calls it, that this righteousness is alien to us. It is not our own. It is not our victory, but Jesus's. The gospel reminds us that not only that we're all in the same boat in our sin, but that it is only through Jesus that salvation comes. And salvation, that salvation doesn't come on our terms, but his. It comes on his merit, not ours. The resurrection is his vindication. The resurrection life that Christ has is a legal verdict that declares him to be perfect in every way, not deserving the wages of sin, which is death. And so he lives. And so what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that the death puts us in the same boat, but also that the resurrection is his and not ours? The resurrection reminds us of our place again, that while we are definitively his children and that that resurrection is applied to us in our union with him, it is still his resurrection. 
He alone is worthy. Just as the cross humbles us and shows us our sin, the resurrection keeps us humble by showing us that the life that we have is not ours, but his. It reminds us that Christ alone is the one who fulfills the scriptures, as verses four, 3 and 4 tell us. Friends, Christians cannot be proud of who they are because we didn't do anything to become who we are. We can't be proud of something that we didn't do. We can be proud of him. And so our boast is not in anything of ourselves, but our boast is in Christ. We didn't earn anything. There is nothing good about us that has not been given to us. And so we must remain humble with that knowledge. But I think that the part that we need to pay attention to is the way that Paul describes himself in verses 9 to 11. Here we see Paul work through his testimony to the Lord's grace in his own life. We see the death and resurrection of Christ dramatically change Paul from a persecutor of the church to an apostle. But it's more than that, because Christ's death and resurrection doesn't merely provide a life-changing, transformative event to Paul's life. Seeing the risen Jesus doesn't just change who Paul is. It's not just a one-time thing. Let's look closely at verses 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Friends, this is that which is of first importance, the death and resurrection of Christ, not only made Paul who he is, but it also motivates and continues with him in his calling to preach. Paul sees himself as an instrument in God's hand. Did you notice that he doesn't say, I am who I am by the grace of God, but rather he says, I am what I am. His, old, his whole identity has been sort of changed by the death and resurrection of Christ being applied to him. So Paul doesn't care about who he is anymore. Paul doesn't care about himself anymore. Rather, he cares about what the Lord is doing through him. He doesn't matter. The mission matters. Really, that which is of first importance seems to be not only foundational and um, central in his life, but pervades everything about who he is. It's not sort of concentrated in the middle, but it's everything. What's of first importance isn't number one, but the gospel. It isn't about me and what God does for me, but it is about what he has done on my behalf. And that pervasive change isn't just an identity change, but also a motivational change too. The way that he lives life changes, not just who he is. And so why is that? It's because the grace of God changes everything. It doesn't just save, but it also motivates. We often think of the gospel as sort of the ABCs of Christianity, the sort of starting point of our walk with Jesus. We learn about his death and his resurrection. That sort of starts us on our way. But it's more than that. 
It's the whole alphabet. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. Everything about life is Christ's death and Christ's resurrection applied to us. It doesn't just start us down the road of faith, but the gospel carries us along through the challenges of life, comforts us in the hardest of times, and rejoices with us in the greatest victories we see over sin as we repent and ask for forgiveness. You see, the gospel isn't simply doctrine. It isn't just the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. Really, the gospel is Christ himself. In the gospel, we don't get ideas or platitudes or even truths. We get Jesus. We get God Almighty. We get him. And we don't just get his friendship. We don't just get the things that he does for us. We get him in our union with him. We are united with him. We are one with him. And so what is of first importance is Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection are of first importance, but really they just point us to who God is and what he loves, which is us. And so let's recap. Everything changes with the death of Christ. The death of Christ puts us all in the same boat as dirty, filthy, contemptible sinners. None of us is better than anyone else. It puts us in our place, which is on our knees, as we see our great need and God's great love. And then everything changes with the resurrection of Jesus, because there, there can be no pride in ourselves, for we did nothing. It is all Jesus. And lastly, everything changes when we are united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, because now the grace of Christ, the grace of God is for me, with me, and in me, and really, it is me. Why? Because I have been united with Christ. And so what is of first importance? First importance is knowing Jesus. Hopefully, all of this has been a review for you. Hopefully, you all know this. Hopefully, this is old news to you. But as I meditate on the gospel, on the truths that we hopefully have known for a while now, how well do I really know these truths? Surely I know them in my head, but do I know them in my bones? Do I know them in my heart? Do I know them in my soul? Does the gospel animate every part of me like it seems to animate Paul? Does it ooze out of my very pores because it's just that ingrained within me? It is my hope that you will f meet a person who shows you Christ so well that it, you come away from meeting with them and you say, wow, the gospel really just sort of oozes out of them. It's everything about who they are. I hope that you have the chance to meet somebody like that because it's a wondrous thing to behold somebody that has been so, so changed by the gospel. And it's my hope that that becomes your experience as well. Does it ooze out of my very pores? I think that about all the times when I'm not what I ought to be. When, when I let my frustration get the better of me when my kids are being difficult, do I look upon them with the eyes of Christ? seeing sinners in desperate need of my compassion and sacrificial love, to see them 
with Christ's eyes, to try to be the embodiment of Christ to that. When things don't go the way that I want them to and the control freak in me just wants to scream, do I respond with humility and grace? Do I respond with the heart of Christ? And as I walk through the temptations, sufferings, and trials of this life, do I have the death and resurrection of Christ? Do I have Jesus ever before me? The answer is usually no. And I bet it's usually no for you as well. The war within our flesh that we see, where we don't do what we want to do and we do that which we do not want to do, when we see that war, what needs to happen? What needs to happen is that we need to be continually brought back to that which is of first importance. That continuing sinfulness needs to be met by the continuing abiding and sure knowledge that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to Christ Jesus. And so we need a reminder, just as Paul has given to the Corinthians, we need to be reminded of what we know is true and is unchangeable. For what we know is imperishing, unchanging, and will never put us to shame. We can rest in the gospel. We can be bold in the gospel. We can live in the gospel. Friends, my life is often controlled by my feelings. And I'll bet that it's controlled by your feelings too, right? But it's in the midst of those feelings of anxiety, of fear, of worry, that we are told to remember what we know. And what we know isn't just the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, these two great truths. What we know is Jesus himself. Why? Because we have been united to him. We know him. We know a person, not just ideas or facts. We know a person. And so as we come to, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, Jesus is telling you that you can know really know what it is to be united to him? Will you come and taste and see that he is good? Can you, will you come and know him in a more intimate way? Because we can. And so that's what we rest in, is knowing him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these great truths of the gospel that you died and that you were raised. But Lord, we rest not in those great things, but knowing that we are one with you, that we are united with you, that we know you. That those events merely are showing us who you are and your great love for us and what you have done for us. That you have paid for us and that you have risen in victory for us. Lord, would we behold exactly who you are, that we would know you and all that you are, that we might worship you and rejoice and rest evermore in the sure knowledge that you are Lord, that you are our Savior, and that you love us. And so, Lord, would we live in that truth 
we live in that knowledge first and foremost. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.